LearnOutLoud.com presents the Philosophy Podcast. Here we will periodically showcase audio renditions of great works from philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Nietzsche, and more. For more educational audio and video, please visit our website at www.LearnOutLoud.com. This is the first lecture from the Modern Scholar course, Discovering the Philosopher in You, The Big Questions in Philosophy, taught by Professor Colin McGinn. In this lecture, Professor McGinn deciphers what we mean when we say we know something to be true. He traces the history of philosophical skepticism, giving the listener several historical arguments for the theory of knowledge, touching on arguments made by the likes of Plato, Descartes, and other important philosophers. This lecture is a foundational exercise for the rest of the program, with McGinn arguing that for someone to begin thinking philosophically, he or she must first understand the methods and thinking that goes into the pursuit of true knowledge. Recorded Books is pleased to present the Modern Scholar Series, where great professors teach you. My name is Richard Davidson, and I'll be your host. Today, we begin a course entitled Discovering the Philosopher in You, The Big Questions in Philosophy. Your professor is Colin McGinn of Rutgers University. Professor McGinn was educated at Oxford University and has written extensively on philosophy in publications such as the New York Review of Books, the London Review of Books, the New Republic, and the New York Times Book Review. He's written 14 books, among them the highly praised title The Making of a Philosopher, as well as works entitled The Mysterious Flame, The Character of Mind, and Ethics, Evil, and Fiction. Of all the branches of intellectual inquiry, philosophy seems to be the most esoteric and out of grasp. Yet, the basic questions of philosophy, from logic to ethics, from the human mind to God, have been pondered by people around the world for centuries. Perhaps this is because every human being has their own inner philosopher, a voice within that asks the basic philosophical questions. For surely everyone on some level wants to know what the ultimate nature of the world is, where ethical truth comes from, what the meaning of life is, and whether or not we can really know anything. In this course, We'll explore these main philosophical problems as each of the lectures investigates a different question that thinkers have grappled with over the centuries. We'll approach the problems from both an historical and a systematic viewpoint. But keep in mind that this course isn't necessarily about answers, and many of the questions we'll consider don't have concrete solutions. In the end, our goal is to arrive at a better understanding of these big questions while striving along the way to uncover and exercise the philosopher's mind that lies within each of us. For more information on this course, please visit the course's webpage at www.modernscholar.com, where you'll have access to links to related sites, a seminar room to share your thoughts with other students, and yes, of course, a final exam. And now we begin discovering the philosopher in you, the big questions in philosophy. Lecture 1. Skepticism. What do you really know? 
And now, Professor McGinn. You might think that philosophy is a subject uh, suitable only for grey-haired old men, perhaps most of them dead, a remote academic pursuit, dry, uninteresting. But I don't think that. I think that everybody has inside them what I would call their inner philosopher. It's a kind of voice that you have that every now and then uh, presses you to think about certain questions which in your daily life you don't normally think about, what we might think of as abstract or very general questions. So everybody wants to know what the ultimate nature of the world is, what kind of thing reality is. Is there reality? If there is reality, what does it consist of? Is it material? Is it immaterial? Everybody wants to know what the self is, what their own self is, the thing they refer to when they say I. Uh, what is that? Does it persist over time? What kind of thing is it? They want to know whether they have free will. They want to know whether they could act differently from the way they do act, whether they can be praised or blamed. Uh, they want to know whether or not they are free agents. They want to know how their minds relate to their bodies. They know they have a mind, they know they have a body. The relationship seems problematic and they would like to know how these two things, if they are two things, are related to each other. They would also like to know whether they know anything at all. What do they know? How extensive is their knowledge? Um, that's the first question which belongs to what's called in philosophy epistemology, the theory of knowledge. Everybody wants to know where ethical truth comes from. When we talk about actions as right or wrong or good or bad, what does that mean? Where does, what's the origin of ethical truth if there is ethical truth? Of course, everybody wants to know what the meaning of life is, what gives their life a meaning. Is there a point to getting out of bed in the morning? What's it all about? And, of course, everybody wants to know whether there's a God and whether the existence of God can be established rationally or whether it's a matter of faith, whether arguments against the existence of God. So all of these questions, which I think people naturally ask at one time or another, often after they've had a few drinks, these questions are questions which everybody asks. So everybody has their inner philosopher. Not everybody, I think, has their inner car salesman or inner paleontologist or even inner historian because those are much more specialised concerns. But everybody is a person, is a human being and is confronted with these basic realities and wants to understand them better. So this, in, this inner philosopher I talk about is, of course, related to what we know of, we often described as the inner child, um, not in the sense of an immature thing which we shouldn't take any account of, but the inner child meaning the naive view of the universe. So children ask philosophical questions of their parents, much to their exasperation very often. Um, well, that inner philosopher is just your inner child still asking questions after all these years, um, and we shouldn't suppress that inner voice. Uh, it's a voice we should listen to and try to foster. Now, all that's all very well, you might say, but how are we to proceed with our inner voice, our inner philosophical voice? Well, it's not very helpful, I think, just to try and do it all on your own. It's much better to have uh, an experienced guide which, who will take you through these questions. And, of course, philosophers have thought about these questions for low these thousands of years, and great minds have been devoted to these questions, and not surprisingly, good ideas have been produced. So you really need an expert guide who can take you through philosophy, the philosophical ideas that have been generated to try to think about these questions. Well, I will be your guide uh, through these questions. Um, I'll be covering with you all the main problems of philosophy, um, not just a subset of philosophical problems, but all the main issues that there are in philosophy, everything from the nature of logic to ethics, from the human mind to the existence of God, all these questions, the self and other things I mentioned earlier, meaning of life, uh, all of these questions will be considered in the uh, as I proceed in the course. 
I would advise you as we go along to look at the study guide after each lecture and to go over what I've said because not everything will be clear the first time around. If you look through the study guide and you read what's going on, it will certainly help you as you proceed through the lectures to keep up with what's going on, to understand what's been said and prepare you for later topics. As we go on, of course, I'll be building on things I've said earlier on in the lectures. It's best if you can get those as clear as you can at the beginning, and reading something as you go along will be much more helpful. What, also, what you need to do with philosophy is sometimes if you're just hearing it, you want to ponder something for a while, and the person is speaking, carry on to the next topic. Well, if you read, of course, you can slow down, think about something you've heard, turn it over in your mind until you think you've understood it, and then go back to it. So really the ideal combination is to listen to the lectures and read at the same time. Whenever I'm teaching my students, I always tell them they need to do two things, and to show up to the lectures and listen and take notes to the lectures, but they must also read the materials, reread the materials if necessary, and then they'll be prepared for what's coming up later, and they'll have a much more rewarding and enjoyable experience in, in listening to the lectures. So I, was, I spoke about the idea that each of us has an inner philosopher inside of us, this, the voice which asks these questions. I'm, of course, a philosopher, but I haven't always been a philosopher. When I was a young teenager, I didn't have no particular interest in philosophy beyond anybody else's interest in things. I was interested in many other subjects. In fact, in my autobiography, The Making of a Philosopher, I describe how my main interests as a teenager were in sports and music. I didn't have any great interest in academic study at all. But... When I reached a certain age, about 18, I suppose it must have been, I had a teacher who taught me divinity at school, and he awakened my interest in these kinds of questions, particularly through considering the existence of God and the states of religion, a topic I'm going to talk about in the very final lecture. And that made me interested in these more abstract questions about the nature of the universe and why we're here and the nature of the human being and the nature of the self. All these questions arose, and so my inner philosopher, which had been latent or dormant, all those years, not particularly active, was awakened during those years when I, when I was a, a late teenager. And I think that experience must apply to many people. I mean, most people are not, when they're young, already thinking about philosophy when they're in their early teens. But probably almost everybody, when they reach a certain age, is at least capable of taking an interest in these questions, so long as the questions are presented to them in a way which is engaging and clear and relevant to them. They can, they can then say, yes, I, I am interested in that question. I wish when I was a teenager I would have encountered somebody who would have just put to me in a nice clear form what all the problems are, what's been said, and that would have stimulated me and awakened my interest. And then later on in life I would have pursued it, read more, I would have had a solid foundation. As it is, I learnt philosophy in a very haphazard way, going from one subject to the next. But in the course of these lectures my aim is to put across all the basics of philosophy so that anybody who has an interest awakened in the subject can find their interest satisfied by just listening to these lectures and reading the notes, and the, the, the readings that go along with them. The way I've uh, constructed this course is not historically. I haven't just d d constructed the, the course by saying what were the first things that were said and what was said by later philosophers. So I mentioned names of philosophers in passing, but I, the, sort, the course is structured according to problems, theories and topics. So I, in each lecture I'll take some big problem, some big topic, the self or free will or the mind-body problem, whatever it may be, and I'll discuss that problem within each lecture, hoping each lecture will be relatively self-contained so that by listening to a single lecture you'll get a good sense of what's been said about that problem and what the various positions have been. I, wouldn't, I won't always attempt to resolve problems. I'll often leave problems open at the end, questions open at the end of each lecture. But the idea is to give you a series of 
distinct topics, though connected topics, uh, and give you the various points of view that have been had toward those topics. Perhaps I should emphasise here that the kinds of questions I'll be discussing are age-old problems. They were problems raised 2,500 years ago by Plato and Aristotle, and they've been the staple of philosophy for the entire period in which it's been around. It's not that we've got new problems now which have come up 10 years ago and we're working on solving them. We're dealing with age-old, very deep, very intractable problems that have been around for a very long time. Things have been said, and clarifications have been made, new theories have been developed, but I wouldn't say that any of these problems have been definitively resolved in the way a scientist may, say, resolve the question of what the structure of the genes was when, when Watson and Crick discovered the DNA and the double helix. It's nothing like that. What philosophy will do is to go towards a clarification of issues and a furthering of ideas, but it doesn't involve taking questions, resolving them, moving on to the next question. The questions I'm considering here are the age-old questions of philosophy, which have been around as long as human beings have been able to think about philosophy. Now, to begin with, it's important to get clear about certain fundamental concepts. And I'll start off the lectures by discussing some of these concepts, starting with the most basic. Here you might feel, I hope not, but you might, that it's a little bit dry, it's a little bit uh, removed from what you want to discuss. You want to get on to the big issues of free will and the self. That's understandable, but first it's best if you have got some good grasp of the basic concepts that we'll be dealing with. So I'm going to start off with those, and the first four lectures will be about such concepts as knowledge, truth, evidence, and logical reasoning. And after that we can start talking about ethics, the self, free will, and God. So, the thing we need to, to start with, really, is the nature of knowledge. Uh, after all, philosophy is the pursuit of knowledge, among other subjects also the pursuit of knowledge. But there's the question, what is knowledge and how much do we really know? And that's, I think, where we'll start. Most introductions to philosophy do start with the question of what we know, and I will make no exception to that rule. So let's begin, then, with that question. This question goes back to the person usually thought to have originated uh, philosophy, Plato. And Plato uh, formulated the question in a very vivid way, and it is now called the parable of the cave. Here's the way Plato described that, that situation. He invited us to think about um, a group of people who have spent their entire lives in an underground cave. They've never seen the external world at all. What they see instead are shadows which are cast on a wall in front of them by a fire behind them, and these shadows are the shadows of the real events which might exist outside of the cave. But all they see are just the shadows of these real events. Some of the shadows come from themselves, some shadows come from passers-by on a road outside, wherever they come from. But all they perceive are these shadows, and they've done this their entire life. They take these shadows to be reality. They don't think there's anything more to reality than that. Well, Plato's first point about this is that if that were the case, uh, then they would be radically not in possession of the kind of knowledge which we take ourselves to have. If they were to be conducted out of the cave and shown the bright light of day, they would realise that the world that they lived in was a world of illusion, a world of mere appearances, and that the real world was very different from what they had expected. Plato thought the job of, philo of the philosopher was to try to in induce the, mem the members of the cave to realise that their situation was a limited situation, and to try to acquire genuine knowledge. But the question that he's raising there can be applied to our own situation. We, here we are going through our lives, and there are various appearances that present themselves to us. The appearance of the senses, things we have various visual experiences, auditory experiences, things look a certain way, things sound a certain way, things feel a certain way. 
And as a, as a result of these experiences, we make assumptions about the way the world really is. But Plato's question, dramatized by the, the cave, is how do we justify that assumption? Maybe they're just appearances. Maybe the world is something very different from what we suppose it is. Maybe there's no world out there at all. Maybe there are just the appearances. So that's this question, which you can see is a very fundamental question about the relationship between appearance and reality and our justification for believing things about reality when all we have to go on are appearances. These are basic questions which are built into the human condition. So it's not surprising that philosophers have been exercised with them from the very beginning, and it's not surprising that this should prove to be a difficult problem to handle. Obviously, people don't always know what they think they know. They make mistakes. People have false beliefs. They think that they know the date of a certain battle. They get it wrong. And if they're taking an exam, they, their grade suffers. So people may think they see a bent stick in water. It's just the result of a visual illusion. They think they see, again, water in a desert, but it's just the mirage illusion. So human nature is vulnerable to certain kinds of mistakes. We're certainly not infallible. God is meant to be infallible and omniscient. Human beings are not infallible. They do make mistakes. So far, not so philosophical. But how widespread could our mistakes be? Could we be wrong about most of what we think? How much of what we, can we be wrong about? Could we be wrong about everything? Well, scepticism is the doctrine or the suggestion that we could be wrong about everything or almost everything. So most, it's, according to scepticism, most of what we think we know, we don't know. We make mistakes and we have not an insufficient justification for what it is that we take ourselves to know. Scepticism goes back to the ancient Greeks, but as, as much else, but uh, Descartes, René Descartes, of the, the philosopher of the 17th century, also a mathematician and scientist, Descartes was the consummate sceptic. He's the person who pushed scepticism as far as it could possibly go. Here's, what Descartes, here's how Descartes proceeded. He wanted to know what could be doubted. What is it that we take ourselves to know which can conceivably be doubted? And thereby to establish uh, what is less than certain. So Descartes' project was to try to find out what, or is, what is and what is not certain. And the way to do that is to find out what can or cannot be doubted. So let's take an example. Here am I sitting at a, at a desk. I'm uh, speaking into a, a microphone. At least that's what I take myself to be doing. But how do I know that that is really the case? Can I be certain that I'm sitting at a desk giving a, giving a lecture to you? Well, the first point that Descartes makes about this is a point which I think everybody can um, identify with, which is this. Very often I've had dreams in which I've taken myself to be doing something or in a certain situation. And, of course, it's only a dream, and I'm not doing that. I'm not in that situation. I may have had a dream to the effect that I was giving a lecture. Very often I do have dreams about turning up to lectures which I'm not quite prepared for. Um, it's a typical form of anxiety dream. In, during the course of a dream like that, one believes, I believe in those cases, that I actually am giving a lecture on a subject I'm completely incompetent to talk about. And, of course, it produces anxiety. I believe, though, that that's what's happening. But I'm wrong. My belief is false. So Descartes' question is, how do I know now that I'm not dreaming? After all, if I were dreaming, I would believe that I was not dreaming. I would have exactly the same state of belief in the dream that I have otherwise when I take myself to be awake. So how do I really know that I'm not dreaming now? Maybe I'm just asleep in bed and that's all there is to it. Well, this uh, this idea of Descartes uh, to, to recent filmgoers has been given a, um, an expression in the form of a movie 
called The Matrix. I'm sure many of you have seen that movie. In The Matrix story, uh, machines have hooked up human beings to electrodes. All the human beings lie immobile in pods and they're being used to, for their fuel. Uh, and the Matrix feeds into the brains of all the human beings an entirely dream world. There's no reality there. So everybody's in a dream, but everybody thinks that they're not in a dream. And the philosophical question raised by the film is, how do we know we're not in the Matrix now? After all, it would seem to us that we're not in the Matrix, even if we are in the Matrix. So maybe we are. How can we rule out the possibility that we are actually all in the Matrix? I read the other day of a, some philosopher somewhere who was trying to figure out how likely it is we're in the Matrix, what the probability is. It would be difficult to know what evidence would count towards that, perhaps if there were some human beings who seemingly sincerely claimed that they'd been outside the Matrix, just like the characters in the movie, and they said, no, really, we've been outside, we know you're all hooked up in a Matrix. Maybe that would be evidence, maybe not very strong evidence that we are in the Matrix. But the problem of Descartes is, how do we know that we're not? Not how do we know that we are, if we are, but how do we know we're not in the Matrix? Another version of this, um, which you might come across, is called the brain-in-a-vat scenario. This is the case of the idea that scientists have removed our brains from our bodies, they've put them in a vat of nutrients, and they're feeding us hallucinations of the world. Not dreams, exactly, that's, that's the thing we talked about so far, but hallucinations of things. People who are awake in their, in their vats, they just hallucinate everything. So the other form of the same question is, how do we know we're not brains in vats. If we were brains in vats, things would seem the same way to us as they do if we were not brains in vats, so how can we distinguish between the two cases? So, you can see the nature of the, of the problem. Maybe the entire external world is an illusion. Maybe we're not hooked up to reality in the way we are at all. How can we prove that that's not the case? What can we cite? It's no good me citing, say, now, well, but it seems to me that I'm giving this lecture, because that's completely consistent with I'm only dreaming that I'm giving the lecture. It's no good the brain in the vat trying to find more and more sensory, sensory experiences to back up its belief that it really is seeing a dog in front of it or whatever it may be, because it would have those experiences even if it were a brain in a vat. So all those pieces of evidence that might be cited don't seem to be useful in distinguishing between the real, what we take to be reality, and the sceptical possibility that we're the brain in the vat, we're in the matrix, we're always dreaming. Now, once you've seen that point, of course, it doesn't just end, it's not just physical objects outside of you, it's your own body, too. How do you know that you have a body? You normally take yourself to have a body, but maybe you don't. Maybe you're a brain in a vat, and the, and the clever scientists are giving you the illusion that you have a body. Whenever you, make an, whenever you have an intention to do something, say, to lift your arm, the scientists just feed in through the electrodes the impression that your arm is lifted. But you don't have an arm. What you have is a complete phantom body. Just as people have a phantom limb they take to be real and isn't real? Couldn't they have a phantom entire lower half? Couldn't they have a phantom up to their neck? Couldn't they have a complete phantom body? Perhaps except for their brain, whatever their brain is. I mean, maybe we're completely wrong about the nature of our brains. Maybe they're not made of neurons. Who, who's to say? The sceptic will say, how can you prove this, these claims? Certainly they're not certain. So that's the first kind of scepticism, scepticism about the external world. And it's a very radical and disturbing kind of scepticism. Um, how do we really know that this is the case? It seems we all take it for granted, but when we examine the question, we seem to run out of any convincing reasons to establish what we all take for granted. Maybe common sense is completely mistaken. Well, that was one kind of scepticism. There are other kinds of scepticism, too. 
once you've got the hang of the idea, you can generate them fairly easily. Um, let's take the problem of what's called the problem of other minds. How do I know other people have minds? Um, I take myself to have a mind, obviously. Um, I take myself to be certain I have a mind. We'll come back to that question. But I also think that other people have minds. I think my wife has a mind. I think my friends have minds. I think vast millions and millions of people have minds. Why do I think that they have minds? Do I directly experience their minds? No. I certainly don't experience their minds in the way I experience my own mind. So the basis of my belief in other people's minds can't be the same as my belief in my own mind. Well, the answer is fairly obvious as to why I believe that other people have minds. It's something to do with their behaviour. They behave as if they have minds. They have brains too and nervous systems and they have bodies. And so, given the way that they behave, the things they say, if they behaving, you know, in a groaning and moaning and holding a part of their body, you make the assumption that they, ha they are in pain. So that's why we assume it. But the sceptic will say, but why is that a sufficient basis to believe that other people have minds? Aren't we making a leap from, well, they're behaving in a certain way to they actually have minds, as it were, behind the behaviour? We don't have any direct access to what this alleged mind behind their behaviour. So why do we believe in it? Maybe they're all robots. Maybe there's nothing in there. They're zombies. Uh, they're wandering around the world without any consciousness at all. And I'm the only person with consciousness. How can I rule out that hypothesis? How do I really know that other people have minds and not just a mindless automata? You might think the answer to this sceptical problem about other minds was, was easy. You might suppose that the, re the reason we can justifiably believe in other minds is based on analogy. And this is why this is often called the argument from analogy. So the idea would be this. I know that I have a mind. I can see an analogy between myself and you because you have a body like mine and you behave in the same way that I do. So I make the assumption that you're similar to me in also having a mind. So I say, well, you're similar to me in the fact that you have a body and you behave in the ways that I do. And you also, you're also similar to me in the sense that you have a mind. Therefore, I know that you have a mind on the basis of this analogy. The problem with this, there are several problems, but the main problem is uh, how do I generalize from my own case so irresponsibly how is it that i can assume just from the fact that i have a mind this particular human body has a mind that you have a mind and, and not just you but everybody how can i justify my belief that just because in my case there's an association between a mind and a body of a certain type therefore in the case of all the other millions of bodies that are out there there's a similar association between the body and the mind how do i move from the one case that I have a mind to the idea that every other person with the body has a mind too. It seems like an extremely dubious inference. Speaking of robots, there's the other question. If you were to have robots, how would you know that they don't have minds? What would establish that? The film Blade Runner is a, is a version of that kind of story. I mean, you've just got, you've got the behaviour there. It seems similar to the behaviour of humans. Well, we think humans have the minds, the robots don't. Well, what justifies that? apparent discrimination between the two cases. How do we really know anything about the mental states of other organisms apart from ourselves? That's the basic problem of other minds. It's something which children, I mentioned children earlier, children will come up with very early on when they, say, they ask questions like, how do I know that you see the world in the same colours that I see the world? When I look at something, it looks red. How do they know, how do, do, do I know that other people, when they look at the same object, it looks red to them? Maybe it looks a completely different colour. That difference probably wouldn't show up in their behaviour. So how do I really know what their mental states are? So there are really two questions there, aren't there? One is, how do I know which mental state somebody else has? And the more radical question, 
how do I know they have any mental states? Well, that's the problem of other minds. Equally a disturbing, sceptical problem. It questions our whole common-sense belief about things. And if you were to become convinced by it, it would entirely change your relationship to other people. You would start to think they were zombies, and that might be something that would affect the way you treat them. Well, that's what the two scepticism we have so far lead to a, um, a doctrine or a position or perhaps a fear which has the traditional name solipsism. Solipsism is the idea that only I exist. Nothing else exists. There are no other minds apart from me and there are no other bodies apart from me and there are no physical objects. I am the only thing which exists. So the sceptic is really saying, how can I disprove solipsism? How can I show there are things other than me? Now, even that extent of scepticism isn't the whole way. We haven't, we've talked now, we haven't said anything yet about time. We just talked about things existing or not existing independently of me or otherwise. But there's this question. Suppose I can know that I exist. Do I know that I exist in the past? Do I know I'll exist into the future? Well, here's the problem. There's a problem here about how do I know about the past and how do I know about the future? And there are two questions about this. One is about the future, one is about the past. The one about the future goes as follows. I've made, over the course of my life, various observations about the way things behave. I know that if I jump from a tall building, I'll fall under the force of gravity. I know if I eat bread, I'll be nourished. I know that if I touch fire, it will burn me. I know a great many, take, take myself to know a great many things about the way the world behaves. But the sceptic, and on the basis of that uh, knowledge, I take myself to know how the world will behave in the future. I will take it if I eat bread now, tomorrow, that it will nourish me just as it always has. Well, the problem that comes up uh, against this common-sense belief, and it's usually attributed to the 18th-century philosopher David Hume, is called the problem of induction. And here the problem is, how do I make an inference from what I've observed in the past to what I believe about the future? After all, what, what's the case in the past doesn't necessarily imply that something will be the same in the future. Maybe things will change in the future. Maybe the sun won't rise tomorrow. How can I be sure? given what I know about the past, that the future will be the same as the past? How do I believe in the uniformity of nature, the idea that things will always carry on obeying the same laws? Well, again, you can see there's a, there's a gap here, an epistemological gap. My reasons for belief in that the bread will nourish me in the future consist of my observations about the past. But my observations about the past don't extend to my observations of the future. I don't make any observations of the future. I just make a leap from the past to the future, and the question is, what justifies making that leap? So that's the problem of induction. Now, there's another problem about the past. Um, this is usually attributed to Bertrand Russell, who's a 20th century philosopher. Do I know that the past exists? Do I, I have various beliefs about the history of the world in my own history. How, how can I be really certain that they're true? So, for instance, how can I be certain that the Earth didn't come into existence five minutes ago and written into everything about it were traces of a past which didn't really exist. The Earth hasn't existed for, as we're told by cosmologists, millions and millions of years, and the universe for millions and billions more. It only existed for five minutes, but it was created in such a way as to give rise to the illusion that it's existed for much longer. Rather like the brain in the vat case, there's an illusion there that there's a reality. How do we know that's not the case? Again, the problem is we're inferring that the past exists and has a certain extent from certain traces of the past in the present. But how do we justify the leap from the existence of the traces to the existence of those past events? So this leads to an even more extreme sceptical position, sometimes called solipsism of the moment. 
Solipsism of the moment is, the only thing I can know to exist is me right now. Not me in the past, not me in the future, not anything apart from me, but only my own present state of consciousness. Well, that's the uh, the, the scepticisms which are liable to come up and the familiar kinds that philosophers talk about. We might now ask the question, is there any limit to this scepticism? Well, implicit in what I've said is that it is, apparent, it is apparently a limit, and I would myself think there is a limit to the scepticism. Because solipsism of the moment, though it rejects almost everything we take ourselves to know, there is one thing it doesn't reject. My own existence now. It says that can't be doubted. Now here's where we go back to Descartes. Many of you may have heard Descartes' famous Latin tag, cogito ergo sum. Well, here's, how, here's what that means. Descartes, having pursued the method of doubt in showing that everything could be doubted, um, asked himself the question, is there any limit to this? Is there any point at which doubt ceases, and just something which cannot be doubted, which is indubitable? Well, here's what he said about that. If I'm doubting, there's one thing I know, that I'm doubting. That I can't dispute. If I'm doubting, I know I'm doubting. Doubting is a type of thinking. So, if I'm doubting something, I'm thinking. So I know that I'm thinking. I may not know that I've thought anything in the past. Maybe there is no past. Maybe I don't know anything will exist in the future. And I don't know that the things I think about really exist, but that I am thinking. That's something I really do know, and I can't doubt that. Well, that was one thing that Descartes thought couldn't be doubted. He thought something followed from that, which is quite interesting. Not only do I know that I'm thinking, but I know that I exist. That's a step from knowing that I'm, that I'm thinking or that there's thinking going on, because just from the fact that there are thoughts, does it follow from that that there's anyone that has the thoughts? Well, Descartes thought that it did. And his reason is fairly commonsensical and, in, and intuitive. It is. Surely if there are thoughts, somebody has to be having the thoughts. There can't be unowned thoughts which belong to nobody. So given that I am aware of thinking, it can only be a thinking possessed by an agent, a person, a self, and that surely that self must be me. So I know that I exist. Not necessarily in the past, I don't know, I continue through time, but I know I exist now. So I think, therefore, I am cogito ergo sum. So Descartes had one resting point, one safe place from his radical destructive scepticism, his own self. It may seem like not much, given everything that's been lost, but at least it's something that can't be doubted. Now, ever since Descartes promulgated and defended this scepticism, philosophers have been worrying about how to answer the sceptic, and I uh, fear I must tell you that there is no agreed-upon answer to these problems, and I myself don't think there's been, ever been a satisfactory reply to the sceptic, a convincing proof that we do know all the things that the sceptic thinks that we don't know. So this is where we begin in philosophy with um, a problem where we begin with common sense assumptions and by relatively simple steps we can see that those assumptions are far from solid. They seem highly questionable. And so it may seem that we really don't know the things that we take ourselves to know. Now, here's what some, somebody may say about all of this. They may say... OK, um, the sceptic has shown that we don't know what we take ourselves to know. We're not certain of the things that we take ourselves to be certain of. But why does that matter? Why does it matter that we don't have this kind of knowledge? Is it, is it something that we should be worried about? Is, are we, is there some value that is being compromised? This is something which philosophers often don't think about very much because I think it's 
plain to most people that they are worried about scepticism. Once you raise a sceptical question, you think you would lose something if scepticism were true and you didn't have all this knowledge that you take yourself to have. But it's worth asking the question, why do we take that view? Why do we think it's so important to have this kind of knowledge? Let me make a, an analogy. If you were to discover tomorrow that your bank account was much, much smaller than you thought, you thought you had $5,000 in your bank account and you only have $13, you'd be very disturbed, obviously, because your purchasing power would be radically diminished and that would be a perfectly rational worry. Well, suppose you find that your epistemological bank account is far smaller than you thought. You thought it was quite extensive. It had in it 5,000 pieces of knowledge. And now you discover that, listening to Descartes, it's only got... 13 cents worth of knowledge, just that you exist now for the moment. But you don't lose any purchasing power by that lack, do you? you don't, there's, no, there's no difference made to your life. Are you made any less happy? Can you get fewer things? Can you support yourself any less? No. You don't. The, the lack of knowledge doesn't seem to have any impact on your well-being, on your happiness. Well, this raises the question of the relationship between knowledge and happiness, which we will come back to at the very end. But I want to say something now about why... It does matter to us that we don't have the knowledge we think we have. And I think this raises an interesting point. What knowledge gives us is a kind of unification between the self or consciousness and the world beyond the self. There's the self and there's the not-self. And when we have knowledge, we take ourselves to be in possession of the truth, and thereby there's a kind of bridge or link between us as a knowing consciousness and the world outside of us. The sceptic questions whether there is any such link. So the sceptic questions whether we are unified with the world or not. The sceptic is basically saying to us that we are locked up in our own state of consciousness. Our consciousness is like a prison. We're, we're held into it. We can't escape beyond it. Any inference beyond our current state of consciousness is something highly questionable and shouldn't be made, and really we're not entitled to make any such inference from our state of consciousness. So our consciousness starts to seem like a kind of imprison, a kind of prison that we can't escape from. This is radically contrary to the way I think we normally, commonsensically think about our consciousness. We think of our consciousness not as a prison, but as a window. Our consciousness is a window onto the world. It's what enables us to come to be in contact with things outside of us. When I see something in front of me, like the bottle of water I have in front of me now, I take my mind to be linked to something in the external world, and there to be a unification of me with the external world. If I, if I have a friend or, um, or a wife... I take myself to be linked to that person as a unification, a unity between me and this other person. So if I'm told that there is no such link, I'm understandably worried because it seems as if I've been put into solitary confinement. It's a kind of metaphysical solitary confinement, not the kind you have in ordinary prisons. It's a confinement which arises from the very nature of consciousness. It's something we can't escape from, that limited world, it's our own subjective world. And that seems like an alarming consequence. Uh, it seems like an alarming consequence because we thought that consciousness was something which could take us beyond ourselves. It could enlarge the self. It could make the self more than just this momentary passing experience. It's, it's something which is, engages me with the world and makes me join to things beyond me. So the stakes are actually quite high in scepticism. If we can't refute the sceptic, if there's nothing we can say to still the sceptic's doubts, it seems as if we're condemned to this metaphysical solitary confinement, as if we're never going to escape the sub subjective world that we live in, and that's an alarming consequence. Now, so we've now discussed the question of what do we know and the problems of establishing what we know and how much we know. 
We haven't yet discussed, however, the question of exactly what knowledge is. How should we define knowledge? How should we analyse it? And that will be the topic for the next lecture. This ends Lecture 1.